When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To be very frank, I had a suspicion of a lump, but uh, I just didn't face up to reality. One time I thought it was there, and another time I thought it wasn't there, and I forgot about it. Then I felt very badly, and uh, I came to the doctor, blissfully asked him for a general check-up, but he said, how about if I have a little look at your breasts? I said, well, he felt around and so on. I said, well, what is it? He said, well, I don't know what it is. He said, but it's something. And he sent me down to Matter actually, at the time for a blood test and an X-ray. And I, in my own mind, thought, say, glandular fever, not glandular fever, something mild with the glands. And when I went back to him, he said, what's the eliminate? He said, you haven't got lung cancer, you haven't got TB, you haven't got something. I nearly fainted, you know, I think it was relatively nothing. So I said, what have I got? And he said, well, you've something, but we'll have to do a biopsy on it. Um, I felt terrible about it, you know. In fact, I, I remember it was a Friday, and uh, I left his place at half three and started going back to the office and went straight into a pub and got smashed drunk. We usually undress in front of the sitting room fire at night time during the winter together, and uh, I decided if I went to undress in my bedroom, she'd suspect something, so therefore I had to keep undressing and putting on my nightie with her. So I decided if I acted casually, kept my left side away from her, she'd never notice, and she didn't notice. For three years, I lived from day to day, waiting for death, feeling half a woman. Originally, they diagnosed it as uh, infected kidney, and they decided to operate me and remove the kidney, but when they operated, they found that it was not the kidney that was defunct, it was that um, cancer Cancer. Four people who had their worst fears confirmed. Four people who had cancer. I'm sure all of us at some stage or other have been frightened of getting cancer and sometimes it seems that the fear of getting it may even be worse than the illness itself. But what are we afraid of? Is it really such a terrible thing to have? What is cancer? Professor Michael O'Halloran of St Luke's Hospital Dublin has been involved in cancer management for many years. Cancer is not really a disease at all. It is a disorganization of body cells caused by many different things to which um, people react differently. One could elaborate on that and say that a cancer cell must once have been a normal cell in the body and something has triggered this cell to change and alter its pattern of growth so that it starts to grow at a faster rate, multiplies and then produces a lump. And this lump is what we refer to as a tumour and <clears throat> perhaps qualify it by saying it is a cancer. To the ordinary person, cancer is a dirty word, and we hear cancer being mentioned in relation to political life when they say there is a cancer amongst <coughs> our problems 
in which we live. We hear it mentioned in our churches when our clergymen will talk about a cancer amongst our problems in life. And cancer as such, when we relate it to disease, we equate that with death, which is very, very wrong, because cancer is a curable disease. A curable disease, but only if it is diagnosed at an early stage. Some cancers are not easy to diagnose until it is too late, so it would seem that in these cases prevention would be better than cure. Cancer of the lung is one of these. Many doctors believe that heavy smoking is one of the main causes of lung cancer. Well, and there's no question in my mind that we can avoid well over 90% of lung cancers, and I mean primary lung cancers, if we can stop people smoking cigarettes. And I would like to stress this when I say smoking, I mean smoking cigarettes. Uh, this doesn't refer to the large cigars or people smoking pipes where there's minimal evidence that these cause uh, any increase in lung cancer. Now, the big question is why, why do Irish people fail to uh, recognise this? In my opinion, a lot of publicity has gone through the press, through radio, television. However, one must remember that we are competing against the millions and millions of pounds being poured into advertising for cigarettes by the various uh, drug uh, correction there, by the various firms that produce these cigarettes, who are very, very wealthy firms and can afford this advertising. So it is terribly important that the advertising of these dangerous cigarettes is controlled and controlled very rigorously. In addition, I think the major people that can influence this are the doctors who are dealing with patients. So I would say, first of all, it is absolutely irresponsible for doctors who are supposedly treating illness. It is irresponsible for them to be seen smoking cigarettes. If they want to accept the hazard of cigarettes, let them smoke somewhere quietly, but not be seen to give bad example, because one doctor seen smoking a cigarette gives such bad example to other people. Now, in addition, doctors who have patients who they know uh, smoke cigarettes should try to convince the patient. Now, this is often very difficult to do, to convince the patient that they should stop smoking. Uh, I think uh, where a, when a person is responsible for other people, say a father of a family or a mother of a family, it is absolutely irresponsible for them to go on smoking 20, 30, 40 cigarettes when we know now from the figures available that they are shortening their lives. Probably the one commonest cause of premature death is heavy smoking because it causes premature coronaries, uh, cancers developing in lung in the younger age group. And I have little doubt that this is a major cause of, say, widowhood in the younger age groups. Dr Jim Fenley, lecturer in therapeutics in UCD, who also feels that diagnosis and cure of lung cancer are not easy at present. The chances of cure of lung cancer at the present time are not good at all. Uh, amongst the cancers that are responsive to treatment, uh, cancer of the lung is way down the list. The major approach uh, to treatment, really, if one is to think of cure, is surgery. And for that to be successful, it must be localised. And unfortunately, it is very difficult to pick up a localised lung cancer. 
Now, there may be a place for, say, yearly x-rays. Now, this would be a one way to have an x-ray every year that you might pick up a small uh, cancer that could be removed because surgical techniques are improving as years go on so that while chest surgery in the 50s and 60s was indeed uh, in a lot of cases harrowing it is not so nowadays so that I think improvements can be anticipated but unfortunately still in most cases these tumours are inoperable so therefore the approach to lung cancer at the present in 1976 is to stop smoking cigarettes And yet, there are many people who smoke heavily and don't get lung cancer. This is one of many things that puzzles doctors. Medical research has not reached the stage where we can know exactly when lung cancer begins. There are forms of cancer, however, that people get which can be easily detected and easily cured. Maura is lucky. She had one such cancer. Breast cancer. I came along to the doctor and I'm afraid I was one of these blissfully ignorant people who hadn't been uh, watching out for the signs as I should have been and I was a bit frightened when I realised I was facing an operation. How did you find out that you did have cancer in fact? Well, uh, to be very frank, I had a suspicion of a lump but uh, I just didn't face up to reality. One time I thought it was there and another time I thought it wasn't there and I forgot about it. Then I felt very badly and uh, I came to the doctor, blissfully asked him for a general check-up, but he said, how about if I have a little look at your breasts? And he did, and he told me what I more or less suspected. Do you think most people with cancer half suspected? before they're told by their doctor? I would think that some of us women are afraid to face up to reality and I confess very, very frankly that I I am one of those. Just afraid. And uh, keep putting off. And and the one message I would like to get across to my fellow women folk is that any more than we're afraid to go to the dentist or to the oculist, we shouldn't be afraid to face up to a little lump at the beginning. You've had your breast removed? Yes. Has this had any emotional effect on you? Well, to be quite candid, uh, there was a traumatic experience at the beginning. I do remember when I woke up, I felt that I had parted with something very feminine. But uh, mind you, I pulled myself together, uh, so to speak, and uh, I must say I didn't have any really bad ill effects at all. I have come through and I'm very grateful to God. Maura is healthy. She's one of the lucky ones. But as she said, losing a breast is a traumatic experience. Kay Smith also felt it was a traumatic experience, but she got over it. Then one night on television, Dr Marcus Welby was being shown, and the story was about a lady who had had a breast taken away. And while she was lying in hospital, this large athletic lady bounced into the room, thumped her chest and said, Well, which one? And the sick lady said, uh, which what? Which boobs, said the large athletic lady. So it's, uh, it sort of faded out there. And I thought, my God, surely that large, strong, robust woman didn't have a, a mastectomy. And then I said, there must be some sort of an association in America for women who've had mastectomy, women like me. And I felt, well, you know, 
even though they're going to die, there's someone there to reassure them in the meantime. So uh, the next thing, a few months afterwards, I read a letter in a British women's magazine from a woman who'd had a mastectomy asking for the name and address of the Mastectomy Association in Britain. I thought, my goodness, there's one in England too. So off I wrote to the um, president asking her, would it be a good idea to start such an association in Ireland? She welcomed this, was of great help to me, and we started the association. But now I want to stress that I and every woman who has a mastectomy, when this happens to her, it's a really a, a traumatic period in her life. She feels, she, as I did, that she's only half a woman, that she's going to die because she's never heard of a woman who had a mastectomy who was alive. But at the same time, there are thousands of women, millions of women all over the world, hundreds of millions of women who have had mastectomy and are now living full and happy lives. Married women, women especially are very, very concerned after this operation. They think their husbands will reject them. This isn't so. They're still the woman their husband married. They're still, they're still the loving, feminine, understanding woman he married. And he's not going to reject her just because one unnecessary part of her body has been removed. As a matter of fact, it has been found that marriages are better after this mastectomy operation. I'm not advocating it now for every wife, but they do. There's better understanding between a husband and wife. Also, many, many single women marry after mastectomy, and it has been proved that these marriages are very, very successful. One of the saddest forms of cancer is leukaemia. Sad because it tends to hit very young children. Charles Lumsden's son, Dermot, died of leukaemia. I think he was uh, much more robust than the other three boys. In fact, uh, when he did have the disease, he got group and pneumonia, and uh, he, I think he was that strong, he just pulled through it. He was then a, a very normal, happy little boy, wasn't he? He was, yes, fairly, fairly strong, fairly robust, and uh, nothing that would make anyone think that he, he would get a, a serious illness. Do you ever get over the shock of losing a child? Uh, I don't think, you know, uh, it may go for a little while and if forget for a while and then something will bring it back to mind, maybe a song on the radio or somebody will say something and it just brings it back. But I'm sure there are quite pleasant memories you have of... Oh, we, yes, we have very, very pleasant memories that uh, we couldn't ex exchange for anything, but... Uh, no, sometimes you do get a, a little upset, and I don't think that ever goes away. I suppose not. One thing that you were doing, which is of practical help, is you were involved in an association for parents of children with leukaemia. How does this help other parents? Well, the way we, we try to help is uh, we keep in close contact with the hospitals. And if we hear of uh, newly diagnosed children, if the parents are a little bit... Uh, can't understand her that maybe one or two of the committee go along if the doctors, doctors recommend it and they have a chat with the parents and then we also try to raise funds for research into leukaemia which we run a dance and a flag day every year and all the money collected goes between the three children's hospitals for research into leukaemia and we also have uh, set up a hardship fund for some parents that run into financial difficulties were able to help them out in maybe a small way. Dermot Lumsden died of leukaemia. It must be difficult to tell anybody that a relation is going to die, but telling a parent his child is going to die is not the easiest thing for a doctor. 
certainly it's it's fairest to give some element of hope and don't build a completely gloomy picture. But I think it's only only right, and in fact, in fact mandatory, to let the parents know. In the same way as you let them know that the child had leukaemia when you knew, knew the child had leukaemia, that the child has only a certain length of time to, to live. Do you find this very hard to do? This is a difficult uh, uh, um, position because, one, you can't be sure how accurate it will be, and, two, it, it, you know it's going to cause a grave upset to the parents. But there are parents who have reason to hope. There are children who may live with leukaemia. Damien Daly is one of these. But um, I do worry if he gets a fall or if he gets a bang. I'm inclined to worry, you know, in case anything it happened. You know. When you told your friends and relations about Damien's leukaemia, how did they react? Well, they were shocked. They couldn't believe it, you know, because he looked so healthy. And they were really shocked. And have they been of any help to you personally? They were. They were very good. Like, um, they got up a downstairs and they sent him to Lourdes last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have been a great support to you. Very, generally. very good. And how are you looking at the future? Are you hopeful for the future? Yes, I have a great, you know, great hope. You know, they're finding out everything, something every day. Mr Daly, how did the doctor tell you that your son had leukaemia? Well, <clears throat> I had been warned previously by my local MD that the possibility was there although I hadn't told my wife at this stage and uh, about a week afterwards the t- sister on, in the hospital when I brought him in for the tests informed me that it could be serious so of course you never resign yourself to the fact but you're always hoping that it's not and um, <clears throat> later on in the evening probably around 10 o'clock we were told that there was a, poss- a very good possibility that he had leukaemia, but they weren't certain because they couldn't discover it in the blood. And then the specialist, later on in the evening again, uh, brought me to the hall and informed me that they had discovered in the bone marrow traces of leukaemia. But um, the chances of survival, you know, they ask you really, have you any questions to ask, which at the time you're dumbfounded and you can't think anyway, and it's, it's rather a shock. So he told me anyway that we had to pick a candidate for it to come through with us, that my lad was going to be it, you know. Maybe it was just confidence talk, I don't know, because it, it set you back a little bit, you know. The Dailies are hopeful about Damien's future. He may be lucky. Doctors, too, are very optimistic about finding a cure for leukaemia. Dr Johnny Bell of Crumlin Hospital paints an encouraging picture. As time goes on, the, the, the cases will become, there'll be great, more and more uh, hope for each individual case. And the position uh, at the moment is that there are a certain percentage that can be um, classified as cured. But they have to go a very long way, disease-free, before such a, a, a label can be put onto them. How long do you wait? The, the, a child would need to be absolutely free of the disease and only have been inv- uh, with the disease only having involved him on one occasion for a period of at least seven years. That is a long time. I think with other forms of cancer it's four or five years. That's right, isn't yes, it? yes. So it is a very long time. It is. But all the time a child can lead a normal life. He won't be in and out of hospital. 
No, every few weeks. No, it can lead a perfectly normal life, and especially the cases that are going towards the so-called hopeful cure, these patient, patients will hardly be inside a hospital except in the outpatient department. And so research in leukaemia goes on, and it seems that in the very near future, even more encouraging results can be expected. Another form of cancer which can be controlled is cervical cancer. Most women have heard of the smear test, and almost all women who have had babies are automatically given a smear test. So cervical cancer can now be easily detected and easily treated. Cervical cancer <coughs> is seen in the is seen more commonly in the lower social income group where there are multiple pregnancies and perhaps multiple partners. It occurs at a younger age than the breast cancers and the cervical smear, as you've mentioned, has become an accepted thing by many women and is increasing markedly every year. There is another form of cancer of the womb that occurs in the upper portion of the womb and this is more commonly seen in again in people who were never pregnant and occurs principally after the age of 40 years or perhaps after the change of life and the symptom there would be a recurrence of bleeding and of course as we said initially this is an abnormal finding in any person, and they should go to their doctor immediately. How would you treat womb cancer? Do you remove the womb? If the cancer is in the upper part of the womb, then the treatment would be surgery. If the cancer is in the lower part, or the cervical type of cancer, then the treatment is by radiation. Cervical cancer if treated by radiation and cured, if a woman who has had this and is cured, can she have a baby? No, she is then sterile. But she can lead a normal married life if she's married. Supposing she had this sort of cancer and she wanted to have a baby before you did gave her whatever treatment she needed, would this be possible? Would it be possible to delay it for nine months? No. <clears throat> I think one must always consider the patient with the cancer as the person whose life you're going to save. And therefore you must delay, and therefore there must be no delay in initiating treatment. What if she were pregnant? If she was pregnant, there is a surgical procedure that can be adopted for cervical cancer, and then perhaps her baby may be induced at an earlier stage. Is there any question of aborting ever? Or does it happen naturally? Ab abortion would not necessarily follow, so um, I don't think you would be justified in procuring an abortion uh, to treat an early cervical cancer. There are ways of treating it surgically, and when the baby has been delivered, then you can review the patient and, if necessary, treat by radiation then. I've heard it said that Jewish women get very little cervical cancer. This is so, and it is attributed to the male being circumcised. But I'd say about 20 years ago, all our males were circumcised at birth. Is there, are there fewer cases of cervical cancer now than there were, say, 
before all the babies were, baby boys were circumcised? Well, I don't think there is any true record to say that the boys were circumcised <clears throat> because no record was ever kept of this operation. But the incidence of cervical cancer is, f is falling. And I think this is because of the ladies going to have their cervical smears done. And the very, very early cancer of the cervix is picked up at a stage in some cases before the cancer is evident. Professor Michael O'Halloran of St. Luke's Hospital, Dublin. I also spoke to a GP who had a specific interest in cervical cancer. I think a woman should start having smear tests as soon as she starts having any sexual relationship. There does seem to be a link between sex and cervical cancer. There is. It is felt now that the earlier a woman starts having sexual relations, say before the age of 16 or before the cervical epithelium is mature, that she's more likely to develop a carcinoma at an earlier age. Why is this, though? I think because this, you know, the epithelium is not fully mature and is more likely to undergo changes which may, you know, in, in time become malignant. Can you look at a person and say, oh, yes, she looks like a likely case? There are high-risk groups. I think, you know, somebody who starts, who gets married very young, who starts having sexual relationships very young, is more likely. It's felt that possibly people in lower social groups who have, again, perhaps a, a lower standard of hygiene are more likely. What do you do when you find a woman who has either cervical cancer or breast cancer? Do you tell them immediately or do you tell them it's something else? No, well, with the pap test, which is how you quite often discover cervical cancer, you usually discover it in the very early stage when it is what we call pre-malignant. You know that if you leave those cells alone, there is a chance that they will go on to a frank cancer. At that stage, I would tell them, because once it's taken away, it's gone. And there's no, there's no further risk. They just attend for follow-up tests. But it has not, at that stage, become frankly malignant. And is this a very simple operation? It's extremely simple. How long would, we, would one be in hospital for? A couple of days. Oh. It's literally just a, a matter of taking a small piece of tissue of just a bare rim off the cervix. Cervical cancer can be treated and cured. And thankfully, so can many other forms of cancer. Dr Douglas Thorns, professor in the College of Surgeons, has done a lot of research in the treatment of cancer. During the last uh, five years, there have been tremendous advances uh, in the field of cancer. And in particular, we now have a very good idea of how the normal, healthy person protects themselves against cancer, how the body, I should say, protects itself against cancer. It's interesting, uh, the uh, origins of this, it was found that people who uh, developed one type of cancer were ten times more likely to develop a second type of cancer. This was linked up with resistance then about, uh, so that about ten years ago, uh, by measuring certain, uh, the action of certain cells in the body, these cells are called T lymphocytes, it becomes possible to uh, develop new methods of treatment. And this, as you will notice from the newspapers, is now coming out that people are being treated earlier. 
and they are uh, now considered to have a chronic disease. Anyone getting any type of cancer, particularly in breast cancer, one finds that one is using a drug treatment and also investigating a patient's resistance to cancer early in the disease instead of late in the disease, as was the case 10 years ago. As far as resistance is concerned, perhaps it's better to uh, explain uh, how uh, cancer is treated. First, one wants to uh, reduce the amount of tumour in the patient. Secondly, one wants to prevent spread of the tumour. And thirdly, one now wants to increase the resistance of the patient to the development of secondaries or to recurrence of the original tumour. Therefore, one must consider cancer to be a chronic disease such as diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis. Therefore, that person for the rest of their lives will need checking and not just checking of their tumours, but also checking of their resistance. At one stage, surgery was the main form of treatment for cancer. But modern research has progressed so much recently that several other remedies are now used. In summary, regarding treatment of cancer, there are several different forms. You have the standard forms of surgery, radiotherapy, and use of drugs called chemotherapy. These are mainly used to destroy the tumour. Then one has immunotherapy, which I've just mentioned, stimulating the body's defence mechanism. One has hormone therapy, and one can also have a toxin therapy, which indirectly stimulates the immune system of the body. In addition to this, there is a seventh method by which one inhibits directly the locomotion or the movement of tumour cells and thus prevent the spread of cancer. Now all these methods, other than the initial ones, mean that the patient will require constant treatment for many years and constant supervision. And it's this understanding, I think, in the last five years that cancer is a chronic disease but a controllable disease that is going to make a great difference in the future. Dr Douglas Thorns, professor in the College of Surgeons Dublin. James is one person who had cancer but treatment has enabled him to live a normal life. He is living with cancer. I was operated on first for kidney and I came out of the anaesthetic. A friend of mine was there who's a doctor. He just told me that they didn't remove the kidney that was bad news. I had cancer, but the cancer was very receptive to treatment and that my chances were excellent of recovering. Now, I'm sure if somebody told me that, I would say they're just trying to make me a little bit more cheerful about the whole thing. I have no chance at all. Did you feel like that? I never felt like that. I, f I had such a bad pain in my back. It was a relief to know exactly what was wrong with me. Did you tell your family and friends that you had cancer? I did, of course, yes. My wife knew, and uh, children were too young to know, but um, my wife was fully aware of, of my position and friends. How did they react when they heard? Uh, my wife was very depressed about it, but then again, um, she discussed it with me, and um, I was just able to tell her that the chances were super, that I felt great, 
I, now I, I could go back to leading a normal life. I used to lose so much sleep with this pain on my back. I'd go to bed at 11 o'clock at night, sleep for an hour, and awake for the rest of the night, twisting and turning. What a pain. Many people who suspect they have cancer put off going to a doctor because of fear. Michael discovered a lump in his neck, and he delayed. But finally, he went to his doctor. And he said, well, you know, stop messing around. Go in and get something done about it. So I went in, and um, he then afterwards said to me, well, you've got reticulosis. And I said to him, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's... Actually, he did use the expression, it's fatal, you know. And he said, but it's treatable. No, and he said... He told me he was going to send me up for... He said there were some alternative methods of treatment. I can't remember exactly what it was. He said the most effective was cobalt radiation. And he said to me that they had the best equipment in Europe in St. Luke's. And not to be... He actually told me not to be worried, not to be scared about this idea of going up to St. Luke's. And I went up and... I think it was four weeks or something with cobalt as an outpatient. I didn't even stay in hospital. And... uh, well, subsequent to that, that's almost five years ago. I think it was every initially every three months I had to come back for checkups, and then sort of that spaced out. And then recently, um, this is what about six months ago, I was put on a course of chemotherapy, which is consists of just injections, sort of on a fortnightly basis, and then maybe a month off. I think it's a month between shots, and. Uh, the only sort of side effects or ill effects of that are sort of about a couple of hours after the injection you get the sort of nausea, so just take a sort of sleeping tablet and go to bed for the night. You're obviously one of the lucky ones. When you're a doctor, you said your doctor told you that it was fatal. Well, no, that's not entirely fair. He said something like that which quite frightened me at the time, you know. Yeah, I just wanted to know how, how you felt when... I felt terrible about it, you know. In fact, I, I remember it was a Friday and... Uh, I left his place at half three and started going back to the office and went straight into a pub and got smashed drunk, you know. Um, well, when I went into St. Luke's, uh, well, I was, it was explained that I was getting this cobalt radiation and that I think it would last about four weeks. And I remember then I was brought down to a room and marked out, I think with Jensen Violet or something, at uh, the various, you know where they scan you with with the particular machine. And uh, I was told that I was going to lose some of my hair, but that it would grow again. And I mean, apart from that, relatively painless, other than the sort of the appetite goes and you can't um, use water for shaving or something, I had to dry shave for a while. But in fact, during the whole period, I, mean, I was an outpatient and I was also working. And uh, all that, it was quite embarrassing at the time. I remember I was, as usual, drinking through the whole thing and uh, standing in a hotel one night, sort of running my hand through my hair, and the whole wad at the back sort of came out and had a great job hiding it under a chair. You know? <laughs> uh, I think after about two weeks after, or three weeks after that, gradually sort of, uh, I felt perfectly all right. Michael delayed going to his doctor. He delayed perhaps because of fear and perhaps because he had no pain, because he trivialised his own symptoms. If pain was an early symptom of cancer, then patients would go to the doctor immediately. But 
I would not like to have a discharge. I would not like to have a cough. I would not like to have some disorder of my bowel. I would not like to have a pain in my back that did not clear up. And I would go to my doctor. But you surely and can understand that <coughs> a lot of people feel, well, they're just making a fuss. It's just a pain in my back. I leave it another few months. This is true. Then the patient's neglecting themselves. I don't smoke. It's not that I can't afford to smoke or that I wouldn't like to smoke, but I don't want to die of lung cancer caused by smoking. Now, lung cancer may be caused by other things than smoking, but smoking certainly can be the cause of 80% of the lung cancers in this country. I don't want to die of heart disease, so I'm not smoking. So I'm avoiding one thing anyway that may prolong my life. Still, I may walk across the road and be knocked down by a bus on the way home this evening. Professor Michael O'Halloran of St Luke's Hospital, Dublin. Great advances have been made in the last decade in the cure and control of cancer. Cancer research goes on and people today are living with cancer. If more care were taken, more lives would be saved. Ireland lies 11th in a league table of 40 countries examined for death rates from breast and cervical cancer. Perhaps these figures could be lowered. Antonishtha and Minister for Health Brendan Corish thinks that they could. Even though a final cure for cancer remains to be discovered, disheartening to realise that the most serious consequences of many forms of the disease can be averted by sensible and timely action. This action may take the form of either preventing the cancerous process from arising in the first place or else forestalling its development by appropriate detection methods and treatment. The first method of prevention, the avoidance of the causative factor, is clearly the ideal. The most obvious causative factor which has been identified in modern times is cigarette smoking. The association between smoking and lung cancer has been established beyond reasonable doubt. The effect of this association can be seen in the greatly increased number of deaths from this cause. It is particularly significant that, while lung cancer has traditionally been a disease of men rather than women, its incidence among women has, in recent years, been increasing much more rapidly than for men. The Health Education Bureau is giving high priority to anti-smoking campaign involving radio talks, television commercials, films, pamphlets, large-scale posters and magazine articles. The campaign is aimed particularly at young people in order to prevent them starting the smoking habit. The second form of prevention which carries good prospects of success involves interference with the cancerous process while it is still latent uh, or at an early stage of development. A good example of this approach relates to cervical cancer, that is cancer of the neck of the womb. A simple test makes it possible to detect its presence before it is properly established and while it is capable of being successfully treated. Any woman who wishes to have this test carried out should ask her doctor who can arrange to have it done for her. A laboratory service for these tests is available at St Luke's Hospital Dublin free of charge to doctors from all parts of the country. A similar service is available at a number of other hospitals throughout the country. 
The point which I would like to stress is the success that can be achieved in the prevention of cancer by action which is taken by individuals when they are not immediately threatened by the disease. Avoidance of cigarette smoking and carrying out appropriate tests under medical advice are the main lines of such action. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.